Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, if you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Corinthians 13. No commentator can finish writing, no preacher can finish preaching on this amazing chapter without a sense that his clumsy hands have left soiled fingerprints on a topic that is so infinitely beautiful that it just leaves us longing to see Jesus love himself. What is it like? No preacher is adequate, however greatly gifted he may be. No listener is attentive enough to comprehend the depth of the mystery and the beauty that is contained in this chapter, which is the most famous chapter in all of literature on the topic of love. Poets, songwriters try to go after it. The, some people say that it's uh, underrated. According to the Beatles, all you need is love, and love is all you need. According to Tina Turner, it can be over-exaggerated. She says, what's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What is love, Tina Turner writes, but a sweet, old-fashioned notion? Mm, the theologian, Tina Turner. <laughs> Paul has been arguing in this book, in 1 Corinthians, in chapters 11, 12, and now 13, that spiritual gifts are amazing gifts. They're great. But spiritual gifts are a means to an end. Spiritual gifts are a means to an end, and the end is love. In fact, you can be as talented as you want. You can have everything in the world. You can sell out. You can have the job, the possessions, the family that you love. But if you don't have love, Paul says, you are nothing. So, this last week we're going to look at love. And we're going to look at the very, very end of this passage. The last word in Greek is the word agape in chapter 13. Paragraph breaks, as I've explained before, are, 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 are both um, done with literary skill, but they're also relatively subjective. But here, I think it's true to Paul's point. Love has the last word. And so we're going to look at three things. Love's perfection, love's abiding presence, and love's power. And we're going to go out with a sense of love's power. So let's look. First, love's perfection. Look at verse 10. Lower your eyes to the Bible and look. Look at it. Put your eyes on it. In verse 10, it's not on the screen, but you have a Bible in front of you. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is Paul talking about? The word perfect there in Greek is the word telos. End. Completeness. The, the sumum bonum. It is the thing that we long for. It is the thing that most deeply satisfies you. When the perfect comes. And what does Paul say is the perfect manifestation of perfection? Mm. Love's abiding presence. And then he says at the very end, So now abide faith, 
hope and love these three but the greatest of these is love love is the final word because love is the telos love is what makes us complete love is what makes us whole when Jonathan Edwards if you know me every sermon I preach has got like you know the, the best I can pull of C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and these guys have so helped me understand the Christian life that they are footnotes of every sermon. But in this sermon, I'm not going to just footnote Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to talk a lot about his last sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. The only part of the Bible he preached expositionally, by the way. The last sermon he famously entitled, Heaven is a World of Love. And he writes this, At the end of the world, when the church of Christ shall be settled in its last and most complete and eternal state, and all common gifts, common convictions, and illuminations shall be eternally at an end, yet then divine love shall not fail, but be brought to its most glorious perfection in every individual member of the whole elect church, when in every heart that love, which was but a spark, shall be blown into a flame, and every holy soul shall be, as it were, all a flame of divine love, and shall remain in this glorious perfection throughout all eternity. Amen? Why does it Paul say in the Bible, faith, hope, and peace? And the greatest of these is peace. Paul doesn't say peace. He doesn't use the word shalom that, that marks so much of the Old and New Testament. He doesn't say peace because you can have peace without love. Have you ever seen two people move toward reconciliation together? But they don't really like each other. But they've like practiced the steps the Bible teaches in Matthew 18. And they've really put an effort. And you say to them, hey, like... Are you two reconciled? And you know what they often say. Yeah. We're good. We're at peace. You can have peace but not love. They don't say, yeah, we're good. And we're going to hang out this Friday night together. Why is it that, it that when we do weddings, when we ask the bride and the groom, you know, why do we not say, um, uh, will, you, will you maintain peace? <laughs> that, by the way, is the vows of your 20th anniversary. When you're married, you say, will you love? Till death do you part. Will you love? Why? Because you can have peace without love. Paul doesn't say that the end of all things is peace. He says the end of all things is love. You, 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 um, it's as though, it's as though Paul knows that the peace that you're after is actually never going to be achieved until you can learn how to love. Why? Because peace primarily is radically centered around what you define as what's comfortable and peaceful for you. But love is by nature relational. Love by nature pulls others in and it extends you to others even at great personal cost and threat. In a recent book, The Loneliness Epidemic, the behavioral scientist and researcher Susan Metz says this of loneliness. Loneliness is the distress someone feels when their social connections do not meet their need for emotional, emotional intimacy. It's lack. It's disappointment. It's something we're 
conscious of even when we don't call it loneliness. Loneliness is a thirst that drives us to seek companionship or perhaps better fellowship. Without fellowship we go on needing others and seeking relief for that need. I love to watch people at Trinity meet one another. And I love to hear the questions that we tend to ask each other. When you meet somebody for the first time, what, what are some of the questions that you ask them? I often hear somebody pretty soon, because we, we live in a lot of different geographic areas. I often hear, where do you live? That tells us something about our ability to interact and connect together. Pretty quickly into the, into the relationship or the discussion, somebody may say, well, um, what brought you here? Or, what do you do? Where you live, your story of how you came here, what you do for a living. Like, we value those things culturally. They're easy questions to ask because we often value people based upon what they possess or what they have or who they know or what neighborhood they live in. But Paul says the better question to ask somebody is not what do you do but actually what do you love? And even deeper than what do you love is who knows you? Really knows you to the bottom. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And I, I imagine that many of you are like I am. The reason why I sin almost every time is because I am defending, protecting, controlling my own self-image in a way that is trying to push against the fear of you knowing who I really am. That deep within me, one of the things that drives me, sinfully so, is that we're constantly curating, I'm constantly curating reputation, actions, wanting to put my best foot forward. And that drives a lot. So when Lauren and I have an argument, I defend myself. And sometimes I do so at her expense. Or this weekend, Lauren and Annie are on a girl's trip. And I've got the boys at home. And so, you know, we, 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 will, we will bicker. And we have a lot of cleaning up to do this afternoon. And so, like, we, 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 we bicker together. And a lot of it is me protecting, protecting my, my whatever. Because I'm afraid of being fully known. But what would it be like, oh, Blake? What would it be like if you were so known to the very bottom and that you were totally accepted and that can never change what would it be like to really experience love biblical agape love because most of us when we think about the definition of love we tend to love people or love things because of what we get from them what they provide for us but Paul is saying when you can begin to love something for who they are not for what they provide when you can love God for who he is and all of his majesty and holiness and justice and righteousness and adore him. When your prayers can move from just asking God to give you, give you, give you, give you to then confessing your sins and then just shouting praises to him. Adoring him for who he is. Then you're beginning to have a little taste of what it's like to truly Love. Edward says, divine love is the end of which all the inspiration and all the miracles which were ever in the world were but a means. 
Those were only certain means of grace. But divine love is the grace. And it is itself the sum of all graces. In other words, to be truly known and accepted. Down to the very bottom. Known even more than the person who knows you best knows you. Knows you even better than you know yourself. And your Savior says of you, I love that person. I'm not ashamed of that person. I embrace that person. And when you can begin to say, I am known. Notice that Paul says, we shall know even as I am fully known. Present tense. Paul says, I'm known down to the very dregs. And he says, that's what it means to be loved. Friends, you are known. Jesus adores you. He gave his life for you. And what he wants in response is not your check marks of love. He wants a relationship with you. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs makes this emphasis in almost or in so much of what he writes. You may know that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the philosopher, the well-known Jewish rabbi and um, public intellectual. Rabbi Sachs says that when you can move from understanding God as a notion to understanding God who has a name, you're beginning to get the covenant intimacy that God has for his people. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, Sachs says that things have descriptions but only people have proper names. The God of Israel is a name, not a notion. A notion applies to all objects of similar properties but a name applies to an individual. The God of Israel applies to the one and only God of all men. A notion describes or defines but a name evokes, invites. A notion is derived from a generalization. A name is learned through acquaintance. And if we um, have close Jewish friends, or if you know a rabbi well, you'll know that a big part of, of their theology hinges around the burning bush. Because what happened at the burning bush? God ceased to become the God Elohim of creation and he became the God of his people, Yahweh. And they said the word Hashem, the name, instead of Yahweh, except for on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Because the name is so important to him, because God has a name. He has a covenantal name that he has extended to you to invite you into relationship. He's, he's not a notion. He's a proper noun. He is love himself. And when you, O oh Christian, can move from love being some sentimental abstract idea to knowing that love has a name, the Lord Jesus who came for you, who gave his life for you, who invites you in, not in the burning bush in Sinai somewhere, but in the living room where you came to know Jesus, in the middle of the sixth grade center where you first believed, wherever it was. You may not even know, and that's okay. That's not the point. The point is, God has moved from a notion to a person. Love has moved from an idea beyond sentiment into something to be embraced. love and all of its perfection. The early church father 
Ambrosiaster writes, as John, as 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And therefore love is the greatest of these three, because by it the human race has been renewed. Conversion happens. Being born again happens when you begin to know God's name. Because when you know his name, you know his perfect embodiment of love. And love is relational. And he knows you. And he wants you. He loves you to the bottom. And you can be fully known. But only when you yield yourself to him in faith. Have you? Because when you do, you see the abiding presence of his love. And it doesn't just become a sideshow for you, but it becomes something that paints everything that you do. When Jonathan Edwards was preaching the sermon years ago in the 18th century, there's a whole section of things he just says, what are the consequences of this abiding love? What are the consequences? What is it that it's really like? He, he in some ways, tries to fill in the gaps of Revelation chapter 21. What does, what I read earlier, what does it feel like? When you live in a world of love. So for Edwards, if heaven is a world of love, then certainly there are, poof, I've listed a whole bunch. I'll just share as many as I can before we have to move on. Alright, number one. In heaven, our desire to love, our desire for love, will never fail to be fully satisfied. No person will ever be grieved that he is slighted by those whom he loves. He will re receive answerable degrees of love. Love's substance, not its sentiment, returns with flowing substance over ever-deepening joy. In other words, love there always meets itself with tangible returns of love. What else? If heaven is a world of love, then the joy of heavenly love will never be dampened or interrupted by jealousy. In heaven we shall not feel the least bit slighted. We will not doubt the love of our brother and sister. We will have no fear. Love will be perfectly satisfied out of sincerity and strength of each other's love, Edwards writes, as much as if there were windows into our chests that each could see each other's heart. No empty flattery. No cheap words. Perfect sincerity in every conversation. No mixed messages. Complete authenticity. Expression of love swells from the bottom of all our hearts. That is a picture of your future. In heaven we shall have the fullest confidence that God loves us and we will not doubt the greatness of his love. We'll have no suspicion of God. We will know that we are his and we will delight in his embrace. The saints shall have no fear that the love of God will ever abate towards them or that Christ will not continue always to love them with an immutable tenderness. Isn't that beautiful? An unchanging tenderness like a father to his child. Perfect parenting. Perfect relationship. It's hard to even imagine on earth. We see through a veil dimly. That is your picture. What else? 
oh gosh, which one do I choose? And if heaven is a world of love, there will be nothing within ourselves to clog the exercises of love toward others. In this world, we're heavy with grief and sorrow. Dullness and spiritual dryness, depression, weigh us down like a ton of bricks. But there our bodies have the energy that they lacked on earth. There our spiritual health has the grit to love at all times. In heaven we have no hindrance. There's no tension between us in any way. Perfect liberty. No interference. No clog. No heavy lump of sin to dampen love's heavenly flame, Edwards writes. We shall have no difficulty expressing our love to each other. Don't you want a ticket to that place? What else? There will be nothing external to keep us at others, from others, and hinder the most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. Unfettered delight in God and enjoyment of fellowship together. There will be no wall of mistrust, no hurt feelings, no envy, no anger, no... Listen, just like let this counsel you because I know how hurt you've been. No wall of distrust, no hurt feelings, no envy, anger, or trial to keep us separated. We shall not be hindered from the full and constant enjoyment of each other before the face of God. Coram Deo. There is no lack of the greatest possible intimacy between friends. There's no misunderstanding, no wrong impressions of things said or done, no tension due to personality differences or temperaments or style or manners, no distance through circumstances, positions, opinions, interests, alliances, for we shall all be united in the same interest and all alike allied in our praise of our triune God, all employed in the same goal through our various callings to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Heaven is not a world of peace. It's a world of love. Peace sounds boring, but love, off being raptured into joyful union with Christ is something that is just too good to wrap your minds around. And we will in heaven. Edwards goes on to say, in heaven, if heaven is a world of love, your imaginations will be a, but a thimble compared to the reality of the glory and joy in God's presence for all eternity as you enjoy love with your brothers and sisters. Love will be enjoyed with perfect decency and wisdom. The tones of our speech will complement every moment. The cadence of our tongue will be discreetly ordered in every circumstance. There is no indecent or indiscreet actions or speeches, no selfish fondness, no needless confusion. No one will think, did he mean that? Or what did she mean by that? But wisdom and discretion will be perfectly expressed in love and every expression shall be fitting to the moment and only deepen our joy together in mutual affection one to another. This is your future. Love's abiding presence. We shall all be united in a family that is healthier than you could ever dream possible, Edward says. You know your family. Lord, help us as Thanksgiving approaches. 
that in heaven we shall be together as one family in our heavenly Father's house, united to the Father as his children. We shall share in the inheritance with Christ as his saints. For he shall be our head, our husband, and the husband of the whole church. And together, all of us shall constitute his spouse, and we shall be related to one another as brothers and sisters. And Ephesians 2.19 will be realized. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There we will enjoy one another's love and the greatest of prosperity and the glorious riches, having the possession of all things to such a degree that your possessions in this side of eternity were but mere grains of sand compared to the endless beaches of delight. As Revelation 21 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Revelation 5.10 says he has made us priests and kings. That's your future, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 2.6, he has raised us up together and he has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Edward says, so all the saints enjoy each other's love and glory and prosperity and companionship with which the wealth and honor of the greatest earthly princes is but a sordid beggar. And I think the thing that is um, most poignant for me in this day and age of all of the rhetoric is that in heaven we will know what it means to mutually respect one another. Despite our differences. Despite how you vote Tuesday or how you've already voted. Despite your style, where you live, car you drive, what you do. Mm. everything will be held in the embrace of his love. That's not sentimental. That is your reality and that is your future. We will have mutual respect for each other. As the Song of Songs says that my beloved is mine and I am his. We will sing that together. In heaven we will not only be related to one another as brothers and sisters, but we shall be each other's. The saints shall be God's. And what Paul says of the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 will be true of you and me. We will not be as expected, but we will give ourselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to one another. He brings us into mutual care for one another. We will be in possession of what is the true, the beautiful, and the good. The embodiment of love. Because love is not an ideal. It is not even an action. Love is a person. And Jesus' presence there, his abiding presence, will change you. Do you want to go there? Sign me up. Love's perfection Love's abiding presence and love's power. If we were going to operate by the ways of the world, we'd pass around a clipboard and say, hey, put your money down. We'll, we'll get the trip lined up, kind of like Lewis did on the great divorce. Let's go take a trip and let's check this place out. But the power of love, as golly, Huey Lewis in the news once said, right? The power of, lo the power of love is that the way you get it is actually not by doing, it is by believing. It is by faith.
It is by coming to the end of yourself, trying so desperately to be known and to be accepted and recognize that acceptance waits for you in the Lord Jesus. He opens his arms to you and he beckons you with his love, his being, and says, come. And we say to him, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And how do you know he's yours? Because he knew your name on the cross. He died for you on the cross. Not some notion of you. He died for you. Why does it say that we will see him face to face? Paul says we'll see him face to face. We're not like the Eastern religions who when we die our consciousness just gets absorbed into the whole. We retain our individuality and glory. That's one of the joys of the truth of the gospel. We will see him face to face. We will be known to the dregs, to the very bottom. And Jesus will sing over you. He died for that face. He died for that name. Not just a notion, but for you. And when we are able to move from recognizing love as some cosmic notion, some sentiment, to love being a person. And when we were able to love that person, even the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is, not for what he provides for us. Mm, then you begin to see the power of love. Do you know it? You can. And he invites you to a meal yet again this week. To extend his arms to you and to say while no commentator or scholar no church preacher could ever excuse himself from the responsibility of trying to communicate the greatness of this doctrine we try but with bated breath falling short of how beautiful it is our imaginations can't contain the beauty and the glory of this great gospel and that is news that you have to offer people that is news that you have to believe you can do it because Jesus did it all for you. So come meet love if you've never met him before. The Lord Jesus. The one who gave his life for you. That you could know love's perfection. That you could experience love's abiding presence. And that you can be inflamed with the new power to love in relationship with the one who himself is love and gave his life for you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.